0: Belper, brass. I'm Carson Sestouli This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio Making his weekly Monday appearance This is his weekly Monday appearance on the program He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com Dave Cameron Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball Of particular note, Joe Madden, Aroldis Chapman And the Chicago Cubs Madden had indicated previously that Chapman might not be comfortable with a seventh inning role, and yet Chapman appeared to flourish in that exact role during Chicago's Game 5 victory over Cleveland. Cameron examines all of the factors which influence a decision like that. Moving on. Though Chicago Cubs were remarkable this 2016 season for exhibiting basically zero weaknesses, they do possess one, however, and it concerns breaking balls, making contact with them, and when they do make contact, the exit velocity of the resulting batted ball. Cleveland has exploited that weakness, although whether it's intentional, there's some question. Finally, it's no surprise that both of the clubs participating in the World Series are tending to end a long-standing World Series drought. Which of them, I asked Dave Cameron, which of them stands to benefit most from a World Series victory? The answer might shock you, but only if you are particularly sensitive.
1: Cleveland's probably stands to benefit more if in this situation just because they've been a lower attendance team for most of the last 20 years, really since they broke up that mid-'90s team with Albert Bell and Carlos Baerga and all those guys. I think it's probably a larger financial gain for the Indians from winning the World Series versus just making it.
0: More level-headed commentary like that to follow. What's occurring right now, however, is really the reason I do this. It's to discuss our sponsor, SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. Have you ever been frustrated Trying to buy tickets online? A lot of sites make it complicated. A lot of sites will assess fees at various points during the transaction. The transaction of buying a ticket for a sporting event or a concert, but not SeatGeek. Not SeatGeek at all. What they do is to pull tickets, to aggregate tickets available at all the sites. All of the big ticket sites into one place to give their customers the best chance of finding a deal. Even better, what they do is to assess a grade based on value to every ticket so that like an early 20th century baseball GM, you, the ticket buyer, can exploit market inefficiencies. And finally, for what is SeatGeek known if not their honesty, almost to a fault, but they regard it as the best policy nonetheless, and unlike StubHub, StubHub, with SeatGeek you will never find fees or hidden fees added to your total. For enduring this message, Fangraphs Audio listeners are entitled to a rebate, a $20 rebate. Here's how to claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app, you go to the Settings tab, and click Add a Promo Code, enter the promo code Fangraphs, that's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Fangraphs today for your nearest possible convenience with which utterance we have ended the sponsor's message and almost the entirety of this belabored introduction what is it it is fangraphs audio who does it feature managing editor of fangraphs dave cameron and when does it begin right now
1: Yeah, well, I will say, uh. Was that the, your first World Series game you'd watched last night?
0: That's, uh, you, that is not a fair characterization of my
1: it life. A, it, was at, a, it was a question.
0: Yeah, no, no. I mean, you mean, you mean this year or no, in general?
1: Of this World Series. Cause, Cause you no, haven't watched no, no. last night's game.
0: Yeah, I did. I don't know if I, I mean, I've sat, uh, I don't know if I've watched all nine innings of every game. Do but watch, I've certainly I do watched it. watch all game. Of any game? Yeah. Last night's game. <laughs> the
1: fads last night's game. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, okay, yes, I
0: did watch all of last night's game, Dave. I was writing about I, it. I realize
1: that. I was talking about the other games in which you were not contractually required to watch all of your. <laughs> I've watched most of, of those games, games. Dave
0: Cameron. Most. But sometimes, okay. for example, I will sit down with my wife, uh, for dinner and, uh, She's not necessarily a huge baseball fan, and so you, we will you not... live miss- on the East
1: Coast. Yeah. So these games start at 8.10 your time.
0: Yeah, we're very European in our... What sens- are uh, you having dinner? I, like I'm telling you, we're very European in our sensibilities.
1: Do you have dinner at like 10?
0: No. It could it could be any time after 8.10, Dave Cameron, <laughs> as you <laughs> just
1: pointed out. What is standard dinner time in this is hustle?
0: It's a... Uh, <sighs> um First of all, you're giving me a lot of credit as a as a man to call it the Cestouli household. Okay, um, a or county, just as a human. Household? Yeah, um, eight's not unusual. Seven, eight depends. Okay.
1: Yeah, seven I this think is, is a reasonable dinner time. After eight, you're you're pushing into Appleman territory. Appleman likes it. Yeah, yeah he likes, he likes that the late dinner.
0: The. Um, let me ask you, actually, with regard to the chat yesterday, I wasn't sure if I was going to ask you this or not, but we've segued beautifully into it. If you would shut up.
1: Um, <laughs> if I shut up, this will be uh, more of a monologue than a podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. There's, here's
0: a question. Is that uh, during during the live chat, um, readers will say, they ask me questions like, um, I don't know, it was around the fourth inning or so. It was Obviously, it was a close game the entire time. But I think there was a question to the effect that, if this game tightens up, you know, if, if uh, Cleveland comes back, scores a run, will we see Andrew Miller in the fifth or sixth inning, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that it was always going to be the case uh, for game five, right, that Cody Allen was going to come in first. Is that fair? Is that right?
1: Yeah, probably. I think they wanted to avoid using Miller needlessly. Right. Okay. So – so that so,
0: but you could replace – this could be Cody Allen instead of Miller. It doesn't really matter. But I guess I'm curious as to, at least as, as far as this series is concerned, or if you want to apply it to last night's game, specifically Cleveland winning three games to one in the series, if you were to, to just write it like a, if you were just to have a back of the envelope, uh, decision tree or, uh, you know, decision matrix, what, what are the, what are the conditions now that are informing the choice uh, either to use or not use the Cleveland bullpen. And in particular, the, the high end arms in that bullpen.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think this is that one of the areas where I maybe diverge a little bit from common wisdom, um, is I think when you're in a series like this, you need to look at the larger goal, right? So like for the Cubs down three to one, they have to win three straight games. Uh, to me, there's no difference between like losing in five or losing in six. I mean, maybe you get like an extra game and some extra revenue, but like in terms of the, the goal is to win the series. So if you're down 3-1, you have to win three straight games. And your decision should be based on, how do I win three straight games? If you're the Indians, you have to win one of three. And your question should be, how do I maximize my chances of winning one of the next three games? Uh, we talked about this, a little, or I talked about this a little bit on Twitter after John Lester was removed at the sixth inning last night. I pointed out that taking him out with a lower pitch count, it turns out he took himself out of the game. But removing him with a lower pitch count likely increases his availability to pitch in Game 7 on Wednesday and could have some benefits down the line. And the general response was, you can't take that into consideration. That's stupid. You have to win the game in front of you. And I think the general consensus of most fans is "You in the World Series, especially if you're in an elimination game, you simply try and win today and figure out tomorrow tomorrow. I disagree with that sentiment. And I think from Terry Francona's perspective, he didn't have to win yesterday's game. And... It's not really the end of the world, that they didn't, because now they're going home. They get two games at home. They'll have had Miller with two full days of rest, because he didn't pitch yesterday, and then he gets the off day. So now you can either be extremely aggressive with Miller's usage in Game 6, knowing that you have Corey Kluber coming back in Game 7, and you might not need Miller for three innings, especially when you're going to have Cody Allen plus Kluber, um, so you can be really aggressive with Miller in game six, or you could even say, hey, look, you know, I'm going to be somewhat reasonably aggressive with him only using him for an inning or two innings in both games and and really maximize my chances of winning one of those two. So I think in, in Francona's defense, yesterday wasn't the position where you'd say, hey, look, Miller's pitched two days in a row. He threw, what, 27 pitches on Saturday night. I don't necessarily know that you want to burn him and say, I'm going to make him throw a third straight day, which could potentially have consequences for game six and seven and his usage then in a game where i'm not winning and uh, i might lose anyway so so you so the
0: the difference between winning losing tied, that was uh you think that that was imperative in uh franklin's choice to go to for example mike clevenger in the fifth as opposed to Mm, Cody Allen or, you, yeah. you know, Eva, so, but even... but I think right
1: when, well, Clevenger started warming up after Anthony's Rizzo's double, I believe. So at that point, the game was tied, and the go-ahead run was in scoring position with nobody out. Uh And then I think what Ben Zobrist singled, and that's when Clevenger really started get going. So at that point, first and third, nobody out. uh Pretty likely Rizzo was going to score, and the Cubs were going to take the lead that inning. Uh I think if you're Terry Francona and you're looking at it and saying, look, you know, they've got John Lester on the hill, Lester's an excellent pitcher, uh, you know, they're probably going to be pretty aggressive in how they use a the role of Chapman in this game, given that their backs are against the wall and there's an off day tomorrow. We have to expect that we're probably not going to score a lot of runs in this game. We might not score any more runs. Do I want to use Andrew Miller on a third consecutive day in a game which might already be lost? At this point, like, I might be throwing, you know, good money after bad at that point because... I'm already probably losing. No matter even if I bring Miller in, he's probably not gonna be able to strand Rizzo at third base. Like maybe he could, but you're dealing with Rizzo or Miller on a third straight day, probably gonna be a little less effective. Um, and all they really need to do, I mean they could put down a squeeze button and take the lead. So I think realistically, if you're if you're choosing and saying, Look, do I need to go all out to try and win this game when I have two home games coming up and I can have Miller off two days rest if we lose this game and I don't use him, I don't think there's a sense of urgency for Franco to have to use Miller yesterday.
0: There is a um you mentioned uh, you mentioned the, the possibility of World Series revenue. Um and I'm just curious uh what is the added value of winning the World Series versus merely appearing in it for a franchise?
1: So it it varies by franchise. Um I think for the Cubs there's going to be a, probably a lot more value because they have this 108 year World Series drought and so um I think changing the narrative and kind of giving their fan base, um, you're basically throwing a bone to like lifelong fans, right? Like, Cubs fans are going to be Cubs fans no matter what. They're going to watch the games no matter what. They're going to come to Wrigley. You're not necessarily um, changing the amount of revenue you're going to get from them, but you're probably going to be able to uh, convert new fans and give them a lifelong memory that's going to allow them to remain Cubs fans. I mean, I think at some point there's diminishing returns, um or maybe that's not right the right term. There's uh some damage that can be done to the franchise's fan base if they legitimately never win, right? After like a don't years, I mean a hundred years, years
0: over a hundred years seems like you legitimately can't win.
1: Uh I mean the I think baseball's changed so much now that like I wouldn't expect fan bases to be totally hopeless at this point, just knowing like, hey, look, you know, we were terrible for a long time. But now we're I think I don't think fans are hopeless based on the fact they haven't won in one hundred and eight years. Give it another 50. I think they might start to give up. Okay. so.
0: Well, yeah, because I guess. But but now you said for the you said for for Chicago, there might be an advantage. And Cleveland obviously uh, has also gone through a pretty extensive drought.
1: Yeah, and I think Cleveland's probably stands to benefit more from this situation just because they've been a lower attendance team for most of the last 20 years, really since they broke up that mid-'90s team with Albert Bell and Carlos Barragher and all those guys, uh, when they used to sell out Jacob's Field all the time. Um, now, you know, they're generally lower in attendance. They're a lower revenue team. They don't have a great TV deal. I think it's probably a larger financial gain for the Indians uh in order to, from winning the World Series versus just making it. Uh for the Cubs it's probably less financial and more uh great, we don't have to talk about, you know, 1907 anymore.
0: If if you're considering two clubs uh that have, you know, less than a 50-year drought in terms of the World Series, is it what would be better for club X, right? To win 4 games to 0 in a series, right, to win four games to zero or to lose three games to four where you're playing, you know, at least a f- probably a couple a few more games at home.
1: I think no question winning. Uh, the, the benefit of kind of being able to set, heck, have the championship parade, sell all the championship memorabilia, have the ring ceremony uh, and the carryover from, you know, being the defending world champions is so much larger than just getting, you know, three extra gate receipts, which you have to split with the other team anyway. Okay, yeah. All
0: right. So that that's what I was, I was wondering if there was like a, like a situation like the, like the Broadway play, the, um, the producers, the musical, the producers, which conceives of a situation where it actually is advantageous to have a bomb, to have a totally bad play, to write a bad play as opposed to a good one.
1: Yeah. I'm sure the podcast Venn diagram of listeners, uh, for the producers and Fangraphs Audio is total overlap.
0: I, it's part of the cultural fabric. Dave Cameron.
1: You'll be shocked to know that I am, I am totally unaware of this little <laughs>
0: yeah. world. Alright, fair enough. It was by Mel Brooks. Are you familiar with Mel Brooks? He Heard did Spaceballs? Okay. Do you ever see, see Spaceballs?
1: No. Mm-hmm. You could probably list like the hundred most famous movies in, Amer- in American history and I, I might have seen like five of them. Alright, fair, fair enough. That should be a podcast at some time. Let's just list movies that Cameron has not seen. Yeah,
0: but we'll see if you're familiar with them. That yeah. would be, uh, right. Actually, that might be a decent, uh, off season, especially like around what, like late January? You know, Isn't there, there a lot of fatigue at, at that, that point?
1: Like at that point, let's just talk movies. <clears throat>
0: Uh before I don't know if it was right before the early stages of the World Series, uh Joe Madden said this, and I'm quoting I think from Ted Berg at For the Win at USA Today. Um I'll just read an excerpt from it. This is this is pertaining to the usage of Andrew Miller and the rest of the bullpen by Cleveland as opposed to um Eraldis Chapman and his peers in Chicago. Says Joe Madden. Not everybody is cut from the same cloth mentally or has the same ability to get loose and prepare. Andrew Miller, having probably done a variety of different things in the big leagues as a pitcher, is more suited to be able to be this guy that can get up in the 6th, 7th, 8th, or ninth and warm up in a manner that gets him in the game both mentally and physically. Whereas if he wanted to do that, I think it would be difficult for a Rallis Chapman. I think he would have had to done that in spring training. He'd have to differentiate his mindset. You have to have a different way to get ready. I do notice he throws a heavy ball before he actually throws a regular baseball. That's his routine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He says, I think if you ask to pitch earlier than that, you're looking for failure, right? And uh, th- it does appear to be that mindset that dictated Joe Madden's use to some degree of the bullpen over the first four games of the World Series, and I suppose if you go um, backwards in the playoffs as well. However, Arolis Chapman, Game 5 – Entered with one out, I believe, in the seventh inning. Rawless Chapman, yeah, yeah Rawls Chapman uh, threw nearly a career high oh, number of pitches, yeah. and the result was quite positive. Uh, so those the, the, the fact that not only was Chapman used in the seventh inning and also succeeded would seem to suggest that he's capable of it, and yet we still have this sentiment from Madden that that the that Chapman is fundamentally different uh, than Miller. So how do you resolve these two seemingly disparate and uh, contradictory sentiments or, or facts?
1: Yeah, so I still wouldn't say that Chapman was used like Miller because Chapman entered in the seventh inning and got the final eight outs, but he still essentially acted as a closer. He was not relieved at any time. Uh, there was no one warming up behind him. Uh, there was never a plan to replace him. He was allowed to hit. Um, so he just entered the game maybe may be an inning earlier than he had been. I think you know Chapman uh, had been used in the eighth inning uh, at least a couple times earlier in the playoffs. Uh, so having him enter not in the ninth inning hasn't been that unusual. Uh, this time it was just extended to the seventh inning. Um, this is still not Miller usage where Miller has been coming in in the fourth inning with like runners on or the fifth inning. Um, but I do think that there's probably been some lack of buy-in from Chapman to this idea of um, I'm just as valuable coming in no matter what as I am getting the last three outs because baseball has traditionally valued the guy who gets the last three outs much more than the guy who gets the, you know, 16th, 17th, 18th outs or 19th, 20th, 21st outs. Um, baseball has essentially told players that those last three outs are special. And so I think Aroldas Chapman is probably one of many players who buys into the idea that those last three outs are special and he wants to be the guy to get those last three outs. And I think he sees his value is tied to it, especially as a free agent this winter. So I wouldn't be surprised if Aroldas Chapman when approached with the idea of being used in a different way, didn't want to and said, like, that's not what you got me for. I'm a closer. Use other guys. Get me the ball. Uh, I think potentially now seeing that their season is on the line and this could be any game they lose is a role to Chapman's maybe last game as a Cub. Joe Madden might not care about a role Chapman's comfort level quite as much as he used to. Now he just cares <laughs> about winning games. And so he went to Chapman, uh, reportedly before the game yesterday and said, look, you're coming in, in the seventh inning. And so this was a plan that Chapman was aware of. He could, adjust his preparation for it. But I don't think you're going to see Chapman coming in, you know, in a situation where, say, uh, you know, J.K. Arita gets in trouble in the fifth inning. I don't think you're going to see Chapman warming up as the first guy out of the bullpen. They're still going to use him as their closer. They just might use him as a seven, eight, nine out closer instead of a three out closer.
0: Right. So what's the, what is the secret now? I, and I know that this is, uh, uh this has occurred with the pirates and has probably occurred with a number of other clips too. Where there is a real focus on creating a dialogue between the nerds in the front office right. and the players on the field. Yeah, uh, do do we know do do the Cubs have a position like that that's intended to do that?
1: So they don't have anyone on on staff that's kind of like the Mike Fitzgerald position in Pittsburgh. Um but I think Joe Madden kind of is supposed to serve in that role. That's one of the reasons he's paid so much money is he is supposed to be the go between between the front office and the players. Uh, and he's
0: generally beloved the be Yeah,
1: part. I think you know, he's done a pretty good job getting Chris Bryant to play multiple positions and not complain about it while being the MVP of the league. You don't normally see MVP <laughs> moving around the diamond. Uh you can see Javier Baez kind of bouncing around, Ben Zobrist obviously so he's done a good job getting buy-in from the position players of not necessarily thinking, oh, I have to just play one position and play every day in order to be valuable. Um, but Chapman wasn't with the team in spring training. He wasn't with the team most of the summer. Uh, I don't know how, how much a role Chapman has bought into kind of the culture that Joe Joban has established because he's basically a rental. And so bringing a guy in from another team and then saying, look, we're going to dramatically change your usage right before free agency, that's probably a bit of a tough sell. Um, so I do wonder, like, what a Aroldis Chapman's dominance last night will do to a Aroldis Chapman's mindset about how he's willing to be used the rest of the series. Because I think if you're the Cubs and you saw Aroldis Chapman throwing 102 in his 41st pitch of the night and you're still facing elimination, you have to be thinking about what can I get from him in game six and can I just do that again? Can I push him even further? Like, what, Where is Aroldis Chapman going to start to lose some velocity and lose some effectiveness? It clearly wasn't at pitch 41. So could he go 50? Could he go 60? I mean, a Chapman started in Cuba and he started in the minor leagues and he actually started in spring training a few years ago when the Reds tinkered with the idea of making him a starter. Um, I think it's an interesting question of like Jake Arrieta has had command problems this year. You probably don't expect him to go super deep into the ball game. Uh, game seven is going to be a free for all where John Lackey and John Lester will be available out of the bullpen. So you might not even need Chapman for multiple innings in that game because you got three starters available. So could you go to Chapman before game six and say, look, We're going to go Ariana for five and you for four. I mean, could that be a plan? I don't know.
0: That would be, I mean, that would be, that, and that's the exciting thing. uh, uh, It's one exciting thing, right? That happens during the postseason is you find a number of players, certainly pitchers, uh, working in roles that uh, are unfamiliar to them. Um, And of course we see, we see them being used more often, generally the stars.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's one of those interesting questions that no one – there's no data on this, right? Like, no one has any idea what a role this Chapman would be like trying to get 12 outs because we've never seen him do it. He'd never gotten more than 7 outs before last night, and he got 8. So pushing him from 8 to 12 after one day off, that maybe that's crazy. But maybe considering the fact that he was throwing 102 in his 41st pitch, like, maybe we have – we haven't come anywhere near the point where old Chapman starts to fatigue and, and wear down to the point where he's a worse option than the next guy in the bullpen. And So, you know, especially with Hector Rondo not looking like he's particularly healthy and Joe Madden not really trusting the rest of his relievers, although Pedro Strope is still quite good and probably should get more time. Uh But if you were looking at it and say, look, you know, Chapman, we're going to go to you in the sixth inning if Arietta's not throwing a, you know, completely dominant no-hitter or something, uh say Arietta's. Pitched like second half Jake Arrieta, where he struggled with his command. His pitch counts are probably already getting up there. And we're going to go to you in the sixth inning and we want you to get the rest of the outs. Uh, I don't know how Chapman would react to that. He might, he might buy in based on what he did last night and say, oh yeah, I, I can get the last 12 outs. That's awesome. Uh, he might also say, that's crazy. You're going to blow up my arm before I'm going to get a hundred million dollars this winter. I'm not doing that.
0: No. He's going to, yeah. That's, I, that would, I would be concerned about that. I mean, he's probably done, he's done well financially, but he could, the sort of money he's on the verge of making is like, you know, is uh you just sit by the pool for the rest of your life.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, well, he got 30 million from the Reds when he signed his initial contract. And that's the contract. So that's
0: decent, you're saying. You're it, suggesting it, that's decent money. Well,
1: I mean, I think, so if you look at it, 30 million dollars, but he had to escape from Cuba. And I think we know from what Yasiel Puig and some of these other guys, he probably, we don't know the exact details of how Chapman got out of Cuba, but I'm guessing he owed somebody some money for getting him out. Uh, so some chunk of his contract was probably paid to, a smuggler, essentially, and then the government takes a pretty good share of your taxes, and then your agent takes a pretty good chunk, like, there's a decent chance that a this Chapman out of that $30 million he's been paid over the last six years actually put in his bank account, like, $10 million. which is, mm-hmm. you know, I would happily have $10 million in my bank account, but for a top-five closer in baseball who throws 103 miles an hour, that's um, he's about to get to put up you know fifty or sixty or seventy million dollars in his bank account depending on what his contract ends up being this winner uh you know he's going to dramatically change his financial situation if he can stay healthy and I would think that Chapman's probably of the belief that he has more of a vested interest in his health than the cubs do at this point
0: what are do you have any sense of what the logistics are of? I mean, just even hypothetically of paying a smuggler after you make thirty million dollars, I assume uh, you can't write a check, can you?
1: Uh, I mean, so that part I don't know. I do think mm-hmm. what there was, there's been um, blackmail in these situations before. I believe, like at some point, uh, I don't remember the exact player, and that's why I don't want to speculate. But I believe yeah. there was a situation where a player had not paid the people who got him out of Cuba, and they yeah. took his family or like uh, threatened his family in some way. Um, I would imagine that smugglers are the kind of people you don't want to owe money to. Right. Just like personal safety. <laughs> so, um, whether you have to just get a, like a, a bunch of unmarked bills or you like find someone who's willing to, you know, open a Swiss bank account for you. I don't know the logistics of the actual payment, but I would imagine that these people probably are pretty good at collecting. How do you account for it
0: in your taxes? <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I have no general, idea. I mean is yeah.
0: that a sort of thing – here, Here, even legally,
1: yeah.
0: can you tell your accountant, hey, listen, like five million – this is just – these are fictional numbers, right? No, right. well, yeah. these are real numbers, but right. yeah. <laughs> they're hypothetical. Uh, I have to give $5 million to this guy. Right. Like can you tell your accountant and Your account's like, oh, uh, OK.
1: I mean I think like it's prob it's still reported as income like you don't get to like it's not a write off like there's no like smuggling deduction on the, on the <laughs> I mean uh, it's
0: horrible and it it's funny because it's horrible Yeah I, mean, I I
1: as far as I know you can't list them as like a subcontractor that you used like for business purposes like so I have a you know um a business essentially that I've done some freelancing work for and sometimes like you have to um Pay people money in order for like you acquiring data or whatever, and you say, okay, uh, I get to write some of this off. I don't think that um say Yossi El Puig or whatever is like, yep, yeah, here's my boating expenses and my hitman expenses. I think I think all of those things are probably just, yep, that's income. You spent it. It's just like buying a TV.
0: Yeah, it's a, uh, quite a TV.
1: Yeah, very expensive TV.
0: The Oh, let's see. Oh, I've made some notes here. It appears. As though. Oh yeah, you wrote about it again today with regard to the Cubs, their uh, their troubles as an offense hitting the curveball, yeah. right? Not done it's, it very well. They've not done it uh, in the in the playoffs, and they did they did not they not done it also during the regular season.
1: Yeah,
0: which is strange because they basically did everything else during the regular season. Right,
1: they were the best at everything except for hitting curveballs.
0: Right. So here's a question, just. Basically, is this is this a product? Is is that a product of somehow a team centric weakness? Uh, by which I mean, like the or, an organizational weakness, organizational teaching weakness. Does it somehow reveal the sort of players after whom uh, Theo Epstein and company have gone, or is it a product of randomness?
1: I think it probably ties to their youth, right, and kind of to the types of players that the team has targeted because they value defense. So with Addison Russell and Javier Baez and Jason Hayward, um, you've got guys who uh, a significant chunk of their value comes from their defensive work, and they're really, you know, if they were bad defenders, they might not even be regular position players, or they wouldn't, you know, be, um, they, they, you know, they would be lesser players and maybe not worthy of starting on a team that has championship caliber, aspirations so if you look at like kind of those three guys and you can probably throw maybe wilson contreras into the mix a little bit although he's not an elite defender but another young guy who got to the big leagues because he's a good hitter at a you know premium position where it's hard to find offense uh Cubs comes a lot of guys who are um you know defense first guys or defense heavy guys and so you expect to like carry them you expect the defense to carry them and you live with maybe some offensive deficiencies and so like javier baez has a pretty clear offensive deficiency when it comes to strike zone judgment and what pitches to swing at, and especially when it comes to breaking balls. Like, as we've seen in the series, there's no reason to ever throw Javier by as a fastball right now. He will not uh, keep the bat on his shoulder while you throw 55-foot curveballs. He doesn't know how to do it. He can't do it. Uh, and the Cubs are just making him look foolish, or the Indians are making him look foolish by throwing nothing but breaking balls and occasionally a high fastball over his head and he's swinging at all of it. So and if we,
0: simultaneously, if you throw him a, a zoned fastball, uh, he's probably going to impart some damage on it.
1: Right. This is a guy with real power who can hurt you if you throw a strike. So why throw him a strike? Because he won't make you throw a strike. This is, he's basically the Pablo Sandoval with better defense at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the Pablo Sandoval had a nice career with San Francisco before he got figured out in the, in the American League. Um but I think with guys like that, you're more susceptible to kind of this team-wide strategy of let's exploit their weaknesses. And I think one of the interesting questions um, that I would love to hear, like Terry Francona or Mickey Callaway, talk about in some depth after the series is over, because they're obviously not, not going to give it away right now, is how much they believe they're pitching to their own strengths versus how much they're exploiting the Cubs' weaknesses. Because this was a known idea going into the post, or going into the World Series, the Cubs struggled with curveballs, and the Indians are throwing a ton of curveballs. Uh But they also have, you know, Cody Allen, who has a really good curveball. And Corey Kluber has a really good curveball. And, uh, you know, Trevor Bauer, his second-best pitches is his curveball. And uh Josh Tomlin has reinvented himself with a curveball. I would be fascinated to hear, like, an honest – and maybe this would have to be off the record or something – but a discussion of how much they believe they're exploiting the Cubs' weaknesses versus they just happen to be a bad matchup for the Cubs in terms of the makeup of their pitching staff. Like, I think most pitchers tend to prefer to pitch to their own strengths rather than trying to pitch to their opponent's weaknesses – in this case, it might just be that the Indian strength is the Cubs' weakness.
0: Well, it, it is interesting, and I think that um, it probably manifests itself, if not the most, and certainly um, um, uh, with volume in the person of Josh Tomlin, yeah. who during the course of the regular season this year threw curveballs about 15% of the time yes. and has thrown them 35% of the time uh, during uh, during the postseason. So, that I mean, that also. Uh and that includes the series before this or before these but so he has gone uh very much curveball heavy during the postseason in general and i'm sure against the cubs specifically
1: yeah I mean i think the tomlin's the case that makes you think like maybe this is them just pitching to their strength is that tomlin started to do this curveball heavy thing before he started facing the cubs this wasn't like he pitched really differently against the blue jays and red sox this was late in the season he figured out like yeah my fastball's not very good let's try something else um and I, I do wonder if like, you know, with a guy like Cody Allen, like, um, he's dominating the Cubs with curveballs, but Cody Allen always throws a lot of curveballs. That's his best pitch and he throws the high nineties, but his curveball is what makes him a great closer. Uh, if the Indians had just happened to have, say, like a bunch of changeup artists like Carlos Carrasco, uh, who's currently injured, if he had been healthy, I wonder if we would just see, be seeing a different approach because, uh, Carrasco's not going to attack you with curveballs.
0: No. <clears throat> You, I think you mentioned that the what is it, uh, d- during the regular season the rate of breaking balls is somewhere around twenty five percent. Yeah, that's correct. And we've seen roughly thirty five percent this series yeah. against the Cubs. Yeah. Is it is this also the sort of thing that maybe in the regular season, just the scouting is not necessarily present. You're not going to you're not going to be focusing on one club. You know, if you're if you're Cleveland, you're not going to be focusing on one club as deeply because you know, you're not going to be playing seven consecutive games against them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they have this kind of data. But the question is, do pitchers want to dramatically change their approach, right. you know, from start to start? Probably not, right? Like, I think we know that pitchers are generally creatures of habit. They want to throw roughly the same mix of pitches most games. Maybe they'll have some variants and be like, oh, maybe this team's a little bit more susceptible to pitching away versus inside. Or, I mean, they're going to change their strategy some from start to start. But I don't think you're going to see a guy who generally throws 70% fastballs come out and throw 70% breaking balls just because he's facing a lineup of guys who don't hit the breaking ball very well. That's just not how pitchers want to pitch. Um, and I think in the regular season, uh, it's going to be more tweaks than dramatic changes. And this is this represents a pretty dramatic change, a 10-percentage point swing. Like No team in baseball saw more than about 27% breaking balls during the regular season. So 35% uh, is, a, is a pretty big number. And I think what we're seeing is a pretty significant shift here from the Indians.
0: I wanted to ask you uh, – last week I looked a little bit at um, reliever usage in the past, and it's in, in specifically looking for relievers who not only had been you know, effective in the way that Andrew Miller is effective, and of course there are not that many of them in history because uh, he's quite an outlier in that regard, uh, but <clears throat> had also been used – In a way that Miller has been used during this postseason, and also a little bit during the regular season, Uh, by which I mean specifically uh, pitchers who uh, relievers who have been used uh, frequently for multiple innings at a time, right, and have also entered games at an earlier point uh, than we typically think of as the modern closer. There, there does appear now. Obviously, you know there was a point in baseball, and it looks like it was up, you know, through the sixties. When relievers definitely existed, uh, but mostly they would appear when the best pitcher on the team or the starter essentially was too tired to continue, right, and was probably ineffective. Uh, there was a, a, a generation, though, of um, in, in which there were elite relief pitchers who were also being used for multiple innings. Um, Goose Gossage, Rich Gossage is, is certainly part of that class. Uh, and Bruce Sutter, who was uh, who pitched for the Cubs, uh, was also part of uh, part of that um, that cohort. And I'm curious. It, it, this is a little bit unfair because it's asking you about baseball history, and maybe something that even if you have known it, you maybe have forgotten it because you don't need to have it with you all the time. But what, what created a move away from this? Was it a concern about the pitcher's health, because, you know, in these cases, you know, Suter was, had a bunch of seasons where he threw over 100 innings despite only making 62 appearances or, you know, around 60 appearances. Or uh, was it the sort of other popular narrative, or, you know, regarding Tony La Russa and the use of the, the closer for one inning at the end of the game?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we don't know for sure. But I think the progress of like, – you can look at the data and see very clearly that over time – uh teams have started to learn that pitchers should pitch less, starting pitchers should pitch less, right? So there used to be a really huge reliance on starting pitchers. That was inefficient. And so this inefficiency began to reveal itself over time as now we can really see like the times for the order penalty is a pretty significant impact on um when managers take their pitchers out. And John Lester took himself out of for, out of for 90 pitches yesterday feeling gassed. And so like there's an understanding in baseball that the starting pitcher, the tiring starting pitcher facing batters more often within the same game um, is going to perform worse than the guys behind him. And Lester, I think if he thought that his teammates were inferior quality and had some giant ego, probably would have tried to pitch through it and faced Mike Napoli leading off the seventh inning and perhaps Napoli ties the game with a home run. Um, but there's been a culture change, and I think we now kind of understand starting pitchers, tiring, high pitch count, um, pitchers facing guys third, fourth, fifth time through the order – that was not a good decision uh, in terms of um, maximizing pitcher effectiveness. Now, it was kind of the, the idea at the time. Maybe they didn't have good relievers ready to come in, but in terms of how to get the most effectiveness out of all of your pitchers, you want to get your starting pitchers out of the game earlier. We've seen a trend, a downward trend in starting pitching usage over time, over the last, say, 40 or 50 years, and that's going to continue, I think. I don't think this trend is turning around anytime soon. So if you have starting pitchers getting removed from the game because of the understanding of their diminishing effectiveness as the game goes on, then you, it makes sense and, and teams are incentivized to develop guys to handle the rest of the game. And so you say, okay, we're moving from, uh, you know, the kind of goose Gosage, Bruce Suter, three innings, 15 batters, 50 pitches, uh, more towards the specialists because of platoon matchups, right? So now we, can, instead of having one guy who has to go get all these guys out, we can mix and match. And so now you have um even greater effectiveness in the bullpen and and that kind of leads specialization has led to um you know an increase in pitching effectiveness overall. And so I think uh part of it isn't just like oh the Bruce Sutter's of the world and the Goose Gossages of the world got hurt too often. It's just an understanding of that was not the most effective way to run a bullpen.
0: Right. And it should be said that those are I mean those were two of the pretty obviously you know, greatest relief pitchers of the time over like the span of a decade. So right. if you, you know, if you look at any decade and you take the two best relievers, you could probably use them in a number of different roles and they'd be very good.
1: Right. Mariano uh, Rivera probably would have been great in that role if he had been born 20 years earlier, but he was born into the role where he first pitched the ninth inning. So he was great in that role. Um,
0: right. And he actually, he actually was in that role right,
1: before in 1996. From, yeah. Well, when he John, he, yeah. When saw John
0: Wentland, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, probably, yeah, it was probably that was probably good year. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, that was a, a really impressive bullpen. Yeah. Um, yeah, if anyone wants to, uh, uh, see an impressive season, check out Bruce Souter's 1977 year. He actually, he won the Cy Young as a reliever in, uh, 1979. But in 1977, he was worth, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you, it's FIP based war or runs allowed based war. He was, at le- he was at least five, close to six wins.
1: Yeah, as a reliever, that's pretty crazy because nowadays, yeah. even the best relievers top out around three. I think Eric mm-hmm. Gagne, Maybe that had like a four win season back when he was, uh, using lots of steroids. But, uh, in this current age, two to three wins from a reliever is pretty great. And so for Suter to get double that is, uh, tells you something about how the game has changed.
0: Yeah, right. To do that. And then, and of course that's not even considering, uh, you know, matters of, uh, leverage or whatever right. at that point. So, a uh, valuable season. Anyway, uh, Cameron, you have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs audio.
1: Well, I'm, uh, thrilled to hear it.
0: All right. Well, that's good. That's good. Why don't you stick around for a moment? But in the meantime, I'll say thank you, Dave Cameron. Yeah,
1: I'll come. Carson
0: Sistuli. Has okay. been managing editor of Fangraphs. Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sistuli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.